So today, Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 is all about the year of Jubilee, which Steve started preaching on a few weeks ago. Maybe, I think it was when I was in Greece. Steve started preaching on the year of Jubilee because they mentioned it in the uh, chapter that dealt with the Sabbath, okay? And so the year of Jubilee, that's what we're going to unpack today. If you don't know what that is just yet, that's okay. Not a big deal. But before we go into the year of Jubilee, there's some things that you need to know as foundational understanding. And so with the year of Jubilee, um, it builds upon this specific framework. You know, if you've never read the book of Genesis before, um, Genesis simply means beginnings, and it unpacks the beginning, right? What it was like in the beginning. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything under the earth, and he placed, uh, he created a garden called Eden, and uh, Eden in Hebrew means delight, that's what Eden means, a uh, garden of delight, and so God put the first human beings, Adam and his wife Eve, and he placed them in the garden to guard it, to keep it, to protect it, to steward it, to manage it. So if you put it this way, he placed them in the garden as tenants, Okay. He placed them in the garden as tenants, and he said, your responsibility is to take care of this garden, um, and this is what I expect from you and of you, okay? But in Genesis 3, we see that rather than listening to, to God's advice, they decided they were going to take matters into their own hands. Rather than eating from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, they decide they're going to try to determine what is good and evil, right and wrong for themselves, and they, are, they want to manage the garden, so to say, through that lens, and everything backfires, and it leads to what's commonly referred to as the fall. And so the framework here is that this is God's land, it's God's people, it's God's creation, and they are charged with living before the face of God. In other words, living out their creation before the face of God, walking in submission to him, to his glory, to their joy, managing his creation. That's what the way it was supposed to be, right? And then in the promised land, which is what we're on the, we're on the verge of the promised land in the book of Leviticus, all of this is happening right before they enter into the promised land, the nation of Israel as what we would think of in modern world. Um, right on the verge of the promised land, we see that a shadow of the same exact thing happening. We have God's land, which is called the promised land. We have God's people. He disinherits the other nations, and he says, but my portion, my nation is Israel. And so it's God's land, God's people. And God says, if you're going to live in my land as my people, this is how you're going to live. And just like in the garden, if you don't live according to what I say is right or wrong, I'm going to spit you out of the land. Okay. And you say, oh, Bill, you're forcing that. I'm not forcing it. Actually, the idea here is that in the Garden of Eden, there's a couple different words in Hebrew that you can use for land. And the word land that's used for the promised land is the same word used for the land that God creates in Genesis 1. And so there's this correlation here in terms of um, that this is God's land, God's people, God's expectations. But as we aren't living in the promised land, right, and we're not in ancient Israel, I don't know if you guys knew that, but as recipients of the new covenant, in other words, we're living post-Jesus, um, there's a, all these other implications for us if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, because we become a sort of tenant and a sort of steward as well. And so the question is, what did that mean for them? What does the year of Jubilee have to do with that? And what does it mean for us? And so we're in Leviticus 25, verse 1. 
The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Notice that. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits, but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. So every seventh year. So God commanded the Jews, um, you know, part of their weekly convocation was to work for six days, rest for a day. And here God says that same thing is going to be true of the land, that every seventh year you're going to let the land rest from all normal agricultural activities. And so during this year, the work animals and the human labors in the fields and the vineyards, they all enjoy a break from their normal activities. They could eat from the land, but they couldn't farm it, okay? They needed to trust that in that year, God would be their farmer. That's the point. Now, this becomes a bit, this is a biblical motif or what we would call the world metaphor that if Yahweh is farmers, is the farmer, we are plants, these kinds of world metaphors that we see throughout the scriptures. And this is reinforcing that idea that they need to trust God during the seventh year that God would be the farmer for that entire year. Some of you who are more uh, control oriented, like the thought of this is already giving you a panic attack, right? And you're like, what are we going to eat, okay? Um, it's the same idea with the Sabbath. You have to trust the Lord, like Chick-fil-A, that if you work six days a week and take one day off, it's going to be all right, okay? And, and, to, and to say, well, I need to work seven days a week or my business is going to fall apart. I'm sorry, bro, you just don't trust the Lord. Like, that's basically what the Bible would say to you. You say, Bill's a jerk. Well, the Bible said it first, Okay. Although we know that there is good wisdom in overwork, if not overworking the ground, we know there's good wisdom in that. What you need to realize is that the main reason here is primarily theological. This isn't primarily agricultural because you don't want to exhaust all the whatever nitrates out of the ground or whatever is in there. All right, this is primarily theological. But look at look at verses two and four. The land, the land has to keep a Sabbath. The land has to keep the Sabbath. So as the people are expected to acknowledge God's lordship by resting on the Sabbath day, the land is expected to honor God's lordship by having a Sabbath year, okay? To not allow the land to rest is essentially exactly the same as an employer not allowing an employee to have a day off. Um, which we would call that exploitation on one level, right? Maybe the employee's begging you, but the, they want to work more and more and more. But if the employer doesn't allow them to take a day off, that's actually a form of exploitation. So this underscores the reality that God's people are stewards, they're managers, they're tenants, and they're taking care of the land that, that God owns. And so the people are supposed to respect the land as God's possession, and they're supposed to work it in a responsible way. That's why God is explaining to them what they should and shouldn't do. So God gave them the land for their benefit and for their joy. And that's something that we need to remember here as we begin thinking about the implications for ourselves, right? That God gave us the things that he gave us, whether that's 
resources, whether it's talents, whether it's time, whether it's money, whatever it might be. God gives these things for our joy, but also for his glory. And the warning here for the Israelites and for us, if we're going to extrapolate this into the modern world, is that there's a prevention here, of, as one commentator put it, against wanton pillaging, right? And so they are supposed to manage the land, but they're not supposed to ravage the land right? And so there's a difference between taking care of something. In the, in, the, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how Adam and Eve are supposed to have dominion over the world. But if you read rabbinical writings and Hebrew, Hebrew scholars, some argue that should be translated as to serve and protect the land, right? And so there's a different sense of managing it properly, not exploiting it. And when they honor this command, the people trust the Lord and receive blessing. The land is restored and receives blessing. When they honor God's sovereignty, what happens is they are blessed. And so here's the idea. God entrusts them with responsibility, but they need to execute that responsibility according to his ways. Now remember, that's exactly Genesis 1, right? It's the same thing over and over again. Tend the garden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Same idea. Okay, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound, that's Leviticus 16, which we talked about. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. Okay, that's what it sounded like. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So you sound the trumpet. Everybody do it with me. Oh, you guys are great. I'm so glad that you guys did that. And it wasn't just me. Like, okay. Is Bill a chicken? Like, what's going on? Okay. So they sound the trumpet and they proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather. So now they're not allowed to even gather it. Okay, so neither sow nor reap or gathers of itself nor gather the grapes and the undressed vines. It is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field, but you can't work it. All right. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. Okay, so we know that there's a key, a key word that keeps happening here in this passage, and it's what? Jubilee. All right, good job. The trumpet, you guys are all over. But jubilee, thank you, deacon. All right, this leads to the year of Jubilee. So Jubilee isn't actually a word. Oh my goodness, it's not a word in the English language. If you look up the definition of Jubilee, you probably thought it meant like happy, right? How many thought it meant like happy or something like that? So did I. I was like, I'm going to get the definition of Jubilee. And then I realized it's not an English word. This isn't a translation. This is what's called a transliteration, okay? Transliteration is when you take a word and you just kind of assign um, the English alphabet to it, all right? Kind of like baptism. Baptism actually means to immerse, but that was going to ruffle some feathers, and so they re just recorded it as baptism, just kind of giving, you know, the English alphabet to it, that idea. Jubilee is actually a Hebrew word, 
and it refers to a trumpet. It can also refer to the onset of harvest, all right? The etymology of the word has to do with the ram's horn, the trumpet. Um, and so to ju jubilee is to blow the trumpet. And to be a jubilee, it's the idea that God is going to provide the harvest, not you. And so the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement. Now, if you weren't here when we talked about Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement is the most important day of the year when they would repent of their sins from the previous year. The high priest would go once a year into the innermost part of the tabernacle, give a sacrifice, and all would be forgiven, covered up for one more year until the next Day of Atonement. And so on that Day of Atonement, on the 49th year, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement happens, they blow the trumpet, and then that marks a year of liberty, a year of liberty, okay? Um, and so if the Day of Atonement, this is what I want you to realize from this, if the Day of Atonement proclaims liberty vertically between God and man, the year of Jubilee proclaims liberty horizontally. Okay, and so the gospel, if I'm going to extrapolate into our modern world, remember the gospel has vertical implications and horizontal implications, right? Has implications for the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat your family, the way you uh, manage your money, the way that you run your business, the way that you interact with people, the way that you manage your garden has implications that are horizontal but then it's built upon vertical implications. There's liberty vertically and horizontally. Verse 14. If you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. Horizontal implication. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. He's talking about selling your property. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. It is the number of crops that you are selling, that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Skip to verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, in other words, forever, for the land is whose? Mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption for the land. All right, so here's the deal. The principle behind the Jubilee is in verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, the promised land belongs to God, and you are a sojourner passing through my land. And I'm allowing you to stay on my land. So when they go into the promised land, they cast lots, like they throw dice, right? They cast lots, and then the land becomes distributed according to tribes, right? The tribe of Judah gets this, the tribe of Issachar gets that, the tribe of Benjamin gets distributed by tribes. But the tribes don't own the land. The land belongs to the Lord, and they're leasing it from God for free. Are you guys following me? You say, well, I don't understand why this matters at all, Bill. Well, I'm trying to explain it, guys, okay? If you want to preach on the year of Jubilee, you be my guest. What this means is that the people are tenants on the land. 
and that they enjoy the benefits and the pleasure of God's provision. So, as in all lease agreements, there are obligations that we must accept when we sign a contract, yes? Pay schedule, CAM fees, these sorts of things. If we fail to comply with these obligations, we get evicted. In the same way, the law explains God's lease agreement to stay in the land, okay? If they don't comply, they get evicted. That's what the exile is, okay? They didn't comply with the Garden of Eden. They had one law, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They get evicted. Now God is establishing a new garden for them to live in, and if they don't comply, they get evicted. And, but since it's a lease agreement, they are legally allowed to sublet their property. Okay, that's the point. They're legally allowed to sublet the property. That's why it says you're not actually selling the land. I am selling the number of harvests until the next jubilee. So if we're 25 years until the next jubilee and I break my leg and I can no longer work the harvest and it's going to take me over a year, then I have to decide, am I going to starve to death or am I going to sell the harvest rights for the next 25 years to Larry, right? And Larry's going to buy that and this becomes 25 years of harvest so that I can live and Larry can prosper. That's the idea here of the year of jubilee. And so you don't, have the, you don't have the right, the same way in today's world, to have the authority to dispose of this rental property um, permanently. Instead, I'm subletting it. And then every 50 years, they sound the trumpet. That's right. And the land reverts back to its original ownership. Or I should say its original allotment, right? And so this should help you understand, in part, all of the stuff going on in the Middle East, right? So you probably read this week about the um, Palestinian journalist who was killed in the West Bank and how there was, it was like the funeral was going on and there was Israeli cops who were like, and you say, what is the deal? This is the deal. The land exists in perpetuity in the Hebrew mind for them. And every 50 years, it was supposed to revert. Now, we're going to talk about when the year of Jubilee ended in a couple minutes here. But that's why the land is so important to the Jewish people. See, the, the, the law of, uh, or the year of Jubilee presupposes that hard times come, and in those hard times, God had given you a built-in provision so that you could provide for your family. I can sublet my land, and so even when the harshest of times come, I have a source of income that I can lease out, and I know I'm not going to be too poor. And then, and then after 50 years of hardship, it reverts. And it's like someone says, hit the reset button. What a glorious idea, right? Now, this didn't presuppose, if you read it, that everybody was 100% equal, right? That's not what it presupposes, because it talks about how if you own a house in the city, you own that. And you can sell that with perpetuity. So it goes through some of these other regulations, which we don't have time to unpack. But that's the general idea, that the family in hardship would look forward to the year of Jubilee when liberty would be proclaimed to them. So this reminds us of three key truths. And you can write these down if you want to. One is that God is in charge and we are stewards. 
That's a key truth that this teaches us. God's in charge and we are stewards. The second key truth it teaches us is this. As his stewards, we must trust God to do things his way. How many of you would be like, I think I'm going to take a whole year off, just not work, see what happens. Not even going to plant a garden. Maybe some tomatoes will pop up. Nobody, okay? Nobody would do that. My garden doesn't even work when I'm trying to make it grow, okay? And so, but God says, you're my steward. Trust me. Do things my way. Well, you say, well, what's an example of that for us, Bill? Giving is an example of that. You say, I can't afford to give, right? God says, trust me. It's going to work out. But you have to trust me. You have to trust me first. And the third thing is this. His way really is the best, even if there's hardship in the process, right? If you had to sell your property because you broke your leg or because your husband died, that is a serious hardship. But you're trusting God for a future grace that is going to come. Are you following me? So it's important to know that the year Jubilee applied to a lot more than just land, okay? It applied to student loans. No, I'm just kidding. It applied to, um, at the, during the year of Jubilee, all prisoners were released. All captives were set free. All slaves were released. All debt was forgiven. And property was returned to the original owners. Okay? In addition to that, you were not supposed to work for one year. And those bound by labor contracts were released from the contract. So like every 50 years, it was like vacay. Vacay for a year, okay? All right, so the year Jubilee. In summary, the idea is that these laws help the Israelites to depend upon God's provision, right? And to know how to function in a society that was defined by justice and harmony and love and mercy, and that's what the Lord had intended for them so that they could be a different type of humanity compared to the pagan cultures around them. Debts eliminated, land returned, slavery ended. Socially, families would be reunited when they were estranged because everybody would return to the homeland. They'd be strengthened, and economically, there would be opportunity and there would be equity, but not necessarily equality where everybody had the same amount of money, but everybody had a chance. The passage presupposes that there will be poor people, but that they will have provision and be taken care of so that they're not as poor as they could be. Does that make sense? Okay. So the rabbis, the rabbis were like the, uh, the, the Jewish teachers of the day, like the, God, like the Pharisees, um, the teachers in Jesus' day, who taught in the synagogues, and then uh, even before that, they were the, once the temple was destroyed, you had this kind of decentralized system of Hebrew education come to the forefront. And the rabbis, they argued that the year Jubilee only applied up until the exile. In other words, they said, once we were kicked out of the land, we never actually went back to the land allotments, and so therefore we're no longer under any, under any obligation to follow the year of Jubilee, okay? I know that was like a jumbled mess. My brain I had a synapse misfire. Did you guys understand a word I said? Okay, thank you. Trumpet. 
All right. Good job. Okay. So a lack of jubilee, you can imagine this. A lack of jubilee led to the exile. And that was one of the reasons for the exile was they didn't do the year of jubilee for like 400 some years. And so then God made them, you know, relax (laughs) in exile. And then post-exile, they no longer did the year of Jubilee because they said they weren't obligated to do it anymore. So if you were a poor Jew, a slave, exploited, manipulated, taken advantage of, living in the day when Jesus was born, what do you think your situation was like? Miserable. Really crummy. That three generations ago, your great-great-grandpa, he had to sell the farm because he broke his leg and he was lame and crippled for the rest of his life. And because of that, now you're born completely done. You don't have a choice because that one guy keeps scooping up more and more and more and more land. And then Rome came in and you can understand the tension that would exist in their hearts, how much they would regret Rome, how much they would regret King Herod and these sorts of things in that day and age. The hope of the year of Jubilee, it was just like some distant, ambiguous hope that you read about in the history books, but it's not your reality. Until this guy shows up and he comes into the synagogue and you're under the boot of Rome, you're under the boot of Herod, you're under the boot of, of rich oppressors, and this guy comes into the synagogue, and he opens up a scroll to the book of Isaiah, and this is what he reads. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is he talking about? The year of Jubilee. And then he sits down and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. And you know what they do? They try to chase him off a cliff and kill him. All right? Now, why would they try to chase him off a cliff and kill him? Well, Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to fulfill the year of Jubilee. I'm proclaiming liberty. We're going to bring about freedom. And there's these spiritual, remember, there's vertical undertones, horizontal undertones. Yes, economic distress. Yes, sickness and blindness. But most of all, Jesus came to redeem people from the debt of sin, to open their eyes so they could see spiritually their need for a Savior, and to remove them from these bonds of sin and death. Jesus is claiming to be the one that they were waiting for because they were waiting for the Messiah to come and finally usher in the Jubilee. No wonder they wanted to kill him. You see, the year of Jubilee looked to a new kingdom. It looked to a new king. It looked to a new kingdom people. And in the new covenant, it looked to new kingdom hearts. And those were all the things that would supposedly come when the Messiah came. Because the Israelites had a king, but they didn't have the right heart. They had a heart of stone. They were enslaved to sin and death, but Jesus' blood breaks those shackles and erases it all so that we truly can have liberty. This is what it means to have liberty in Christ. Your past, expunged, reset. Slavery to sin, removed. Captivity to death, 
no more. And this year of liberty being fulfilled continues in perpetuity because we enter into a new type of promised land. That's why the author of Hebrews says that we have a better land and a better promise. But it also underscores the same realities that were true for Adam and Eve and for the, the Hebrew people. The first is this. You are not your own. You belong to God. You were purchased with the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It is your only hope in life and death that you are not your own, but you belong to God. That truth resonates in our hearts. The second is this. God's in charge, and he entrusts responsibility to us as his stewards. Adam and Eve had to manage the garden. The Israelites had to manage the land. And we are called to manage his kingdom as it spreads across the world. And now where is his kingdom? Everywhere you are. Because you're the light of this world, you go out into the darkness, and the kingdom of God goes as you move. And what that means as his stewards is that all of your possessions, all of your talents, all of your gifts, your house, your resources, your time, everything that you have first came from a good, good father who gave good and perfect gifts to you. And it's your responsibility to steward what he has entrusted to you for his glory for your joy, for the gain of others, the gain of his kingdom, and not just like in the, in the situation in Leviticus 25, for your own personal exploitation. So in other words, it's not about, you know, well, what does God want me to do with all of my stuff? It's what does God want you to do with his stuff? What does God want you to do with his house? that he's letting you live in. And by the way, he could take it back, right? What does God want you to do with your talent? No, no, his talents that he's given you and those talents could be stripped away in a moment. What does God want you to do with the time, talent, and treasures that have been entrusted to you for your use, but for his glory and your good? And so we remember as stewards that we are called to live before the face of God as image bearers, walking in the fear of the Lord, loving our neighbor. We're called to walk out the king's authority, claiming new territory for his kingdom as people come into the faith. And we live as people who are joy because, or filled with joy because we're free. We are now free. All of that stuff has been reset. We don't, we're not plagued by our past anymore. And even if we have a miserable life today, one, way we, one day we die and then we enter into a permanent jubilee. And that's the point. Second thing is we must trust God to do things his way and not our way. See, the goal is not to look at your life and say, what do I want? I'm going to take it. That's not the goal. The goal is to look at what you've been given and ask God how he wants to use you for his glory. How does God want to squeeze every little bit of glory out of your life and then die and go to be with the Lord forever? It's not just about what does he command, but it's about how do I go about doing that in the process See, it's not just, well, go and make disciples. And if you're going to be a jerk in the way, it doesn't matter as long as you... No, it's, it, God cares about the goal and the means. He cares about every aspect of the journey. And so in God's stewardship, the how is just as important as the what. 
So God doesn't want you to just be generous and then sell meth, okay, to get the money. That's not what he wants, right? He wants you to have this idea of the what and the how work in union. Nobody, ever, that went over everybody's head. It's not just about the goal of kingdom expansion. It's about how we engage with one another and the world in the day-to-day. It's about whether we forgive, whether we love our neighbor, whether we live double lives, these kinds of things. And the third truth is this. Just going back to the year Jubilee and for us, that his way really is the best way, even if there's hardship in the process. Jubilee brought a reset every 50 years, But Jesus brought the ultimate expulsion of our past and all of our sin debt. And so Jesus says this, look, today in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. He says, don't be surprised when people hate you on account of me. They hated me first. He says, don't be surprised when people malign you and they want to kill you and lock you in prison. He says, don't be surprised by any of those things. Instead, realize that every temporary hardship is nothing compared to the insurmountable weight of glory that is to come and so wait patiently during the terrible season because future grace is on the horizon the ultimate year of jubilee is yet to come and so we in light of that we can say i will gladly suffer all things for the sake of the elect because this life is a momentary journey and then we're ushered into eternity And so that's why Titus says in chapter 2 that we can live with an eager expectation of looking for Jesus' return and doing good. Okay? Let me pray. Father God, I pray that we would live as people who have received Jubilee and who will receive Jubilee. That we have experienced a shadow of Jubilee Um, And it's a shadow that is a guarantee of our inheritance, having the Holy Spirit been placed within our hearts and souls. But now we wait until Jesus comes back and these things come to fruition. And so give us wisdom to live as joy-filled recipients of liberty and to proclaim that liberty in perpetuity until you come back. Come quickly, Jesus, in your name. Amen.